All right. Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. If you've got your Bibles or a Bible on your phone, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We have Bibles in the back if you want to grab one of those and notes if you'd like. We're in a series called On the Brink where we've been going through for six weeks checking out the life of David and not just looking at the stories that we all know about David. We're looking at those stories, but we're looking at the story underneath the story, the things that are, um, that are foundational, that I think it belong to a larger story of what God is saying, not just to people on a level of a surfacey level, but actually what he's doing underneath that, the gospel story. We've actually been looking through for the past six weeks at just a myriad of things from David's calling, this, this unusual calling of this shepherd boy, uh, unlikely candidate, and, and how God uses him to being uh, someone who's in an incredibly toxic work environment situation, how one can glorify God even there, all the way up to last week when we were talking about God enabling David for generosity. These things are all things that we've been looking at for the past six weeks, and now just in time for Valentine's Day. We're talking about being on the brink of sweet revenge. Now, um, and that was not planned in advance, uh, but it works perfectly. Revenge. Revenge. Now, you may say that you don't agree with revenge, you don't approve of revenge, but you love revenge. All of us, this is a part of our existence. Shakespeare said that if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? If you wrong us, do we not revenge? Confucius, uh, man, this is way ancient back, but Confucius said if you're going on to, if you're going to embark on a journey of revenge, make sure you dig two graves. The reality is, is that revenge is something that is a part of our human landscape, and it's something that all of us can relate to, but most of us don't enact it, at least with what we'd like to do. Like, I want you to think back to a time when someone wronged you, like royally wronged you. And I want you to think back to what you wanted to do to that person. What you wanted to say. And you didn't. Let's just say that you didn't. Why didn't you? Why didn't you just lay them out? Why didn't you just cuss them out? Why didn't you just let it just unleash it all on them? Why, why, why didn't you do that if you didn't? It may have been because of the fact that you were worried about backlash, how other people would perceive you, if what you actually wanted to do, this person would land you in jail. Whatever it is, you didn't do it. But what if there would be no public backlash? What if there were no consequences to you actually doing what you felt like doing, what they deserved you doing? What if not only were there no consequences, but people would applaud you? What if, if an enacting revenge upon this person to actually get you promoted? What would you do then? Because that's the story and the account that we're seeing today in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 24. David's presented that very same scenario, and it's interesting, um, his reaction, his response to it. And again, I think this is phenomenal on surface value, but it's something even cooler than that when we look at the larger story of what God is doing throughout scriptures. Let's take a look at chapter 24, verse 1. Um, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines... He was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So he took, how many? 3,000 chosen men from all Israel to set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Okay, pause there for a second. This next week, several people within our church are going to be going to Israel. And one of the places they're going to is En Gedi. 
And Gedi, and, and where and Gedi is, it's like this uh, spring-fed area in the middle of the desert. But you can see how a person could like crawl up into canyons and get to a place where, which would be very difficult to advance if, if someone was attacking you or pursuing you. That's where David's hiding out. Now Saul is somebody who, again, you've, you've looked at the storyline of Saul and David. It started with, with uh, David being told that he's going to succeed Saul, to David actually being a guy who's helping Saul, to Saul being uber jealous about it, and then he just gets into this really weird place mentally where he's hunting him down. To the point that, as a king, he's just accomplished a major national victory of attacking and beating the Philistines. This is enemy number one, and he just took him out. And the thing that you do after that is you go into their camp and you plunder. You get all their resources so they can't turn around and attack you back with the same force and and veracity. And so that's what you do. Instead of plundering the Philistines' camp, he goes, oh, David? David's in the vicinity? Let's take our special ops, 3,000 of the best of the best, and let our special ops go and find him. Now, the amount of men that Saul had, the amount of men that David had, was a 5 to 1 ratio. A 5 to 1 ratio ratio. And this is way overkill. And he's going and he's going to find him in the crags of the wild goats at En Gedi. Verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord has spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Okay, now just, just to Lay the context of what's happening here. What is Saul doing? Right, we don't talk about this in church, but it's in the Bible. He's going to go to the bathroom. He's using the cave as a porta john. And he goes in there, and the, the, the Hebrew grammar in this context is not saying that he's going in there to, you, to go number one. If he's going in there to go number one, he's standing up. He's still able to do something if someone sneaks up behind him. But he's not going number one. He's going dose. And because of that, he is absolutely vulnerable. He is vulnerable. He's, 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 He's crouched down. And on top of that, David seems to be a ninja because he gets over there and gets to him. And he cuts off a section of his garment, of his robe, without the guy even noticing. It's amazing. Continue taking a look at this. Verse 5, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for he, having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, my Lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. You're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers comes evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me 
by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. And he goes on from there. David goes his way. Saul goes his way. Total mercy. Total grace. And it would be totally great if after that, David and Saul just became the tightest of friends. And they write a book together. They lead the country together. And there's this awesome transition between the king, former king and the new king. But that didn't happen. In fact, Saul doesn't even learn from this situation. In two chapters, jump over to uh, 25, you get into 26, and you have the echo of the very same thing that, the very same thing that takes place all over again. Saul finds out that David's around him, and, and the people around Saul are saying, you know, David wants to take you down. He's like, oh, well, let's get the best of the best. Let's go hunt him down. And they go and they try to find David. And just like before, David and his men come in, and David's men are like, look, you, you messed up back in chapter 24, but this is chapter 26. Let's take him out. Come on. And they get into the camp, and, they, and David, again, with amazing ninja-like skills, comes in and he sees Saul. Saul, the guy who previously, when he was playing his harp for him, serving the king, took his spear and tried to pin David to the wall. But he couldn't pin him because, again, David's a ninja. He comes into Saul's camp, and he sees Saul sleeping. And what does he see next to Saul? That spear. The spear that, that was used to try to pin David against walls. Now sitting, just put it right in the ground next to Saul's head. And he's sleeping. All Dave has to do is pick it up and shish kebab him. That's all he's got to do. It's right there. Can you imagine if someone tried to kill you? Someone tried to kill you. And then they tried to kill you again. And then they tried to kill you again. And then all of a sudden you come upon them. And the gun that they wanted to use, to, that they've tried to use to kill you, is right there next to their head. And all you got to do is pick it up. So David does. Picks up the spear. And he walks away. And he goes to the other side of the valley. And he, and he calls out to Saul's right-hand man. And he's like, so you're really good at your job, huh? Because like, I just walked right up to your master and took the spear. Boom. Better start floating that resume, hombre. David, again, does this amazing thing of just look, overlooking this, this phenomenal, phenomenal um, opportunity to take out Saul. And the reason that we have a hard time, we, we're okay with this concept in church land. We're okay with this concept in Sunday school. But the idea of, of doing something like that, overlooking revenge, is not something we like to do. That, that works in church land, it doesn't work at work. It works in church land, it does not work at, on Facebook. That works in church land, but it doesn't work when you get together with your family. Because we are bent on revenge. As a culture, we cry for justice. And we have this idea, this mirage, that we have the ability to enact it. And so we will take justice. We love stories where the mean girl ultimately gets ostracized by her school. Where the slaveholder becomes the, the one who's subjugated. When the person who is the bully gets humiliated in front of all of his friends. We love those stories because they cry to us, justice happened. Boom, revenge takes place. And even if you're someone that is not the type of person that will throw down fists with someone else, you are probably someone who takes revenge. In fact, I'm going to say you are. You are someone who takes revenge. I do. 
I, the last fight I was in, fist fight, was in fifth grade. But I've taken revenge ever since then. And, and most often it's with my family. Like, and, and it's not even something that, that's, that's overt. It's, it's totally um, under the radar. It's kind of like I'm talking and I'm looking at you with one face, but in my words, I'm like, payback. My tone, payback. The way that I'm ignoring you, payback. Thinking, you're totally going to notice this. It's going to burn you. But when you, when you call me out, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just acting normally. Passive aggressivism is something that was my primary utilization of revenge. Revenge is something, payback is something that is in our blood. It's in my blood. You know how I know it's in my blood? Because my mom, uh, she's on Ancestry.com. Look at this guy. You know who this is? That's my ancestor. It's Montgomery Meigs. Quartermaster... Montgomery Meigs, and in the Civil War, uh, just after the Civil War, he was put in uh, the responsibility to figure out what to do with a major problem that was in the entirety of the land, both both in the re- uh, with the rebels and the Union soldiers, uh, both the Confederate and, and Union soldiers. Um, you had all of these dead bodies everywhere, and that was a massive, massive problem. The bloodbath that was the Civil War was was just atrocious, and he. My ancestor was put in charge of figuring out what to do with all the bodies in a way that was honorable. And so what did my ancestor do? He was burned up at the, at the cost of blood that, that this war was. And he put a, a majority of the responsibility and the, the blame of that on Robert E. Lee. And so when he had the responsibility to figure out where to put all the dead bodies, he goes right over to Robert E. Lee's house and he goes into his backyard and he digs up his rose garden and he makes it into a cemetery. And the cemetery is today known as Arlington National Cemetery. What he wanted to do was he wanted to make sure that Robert E. Lee never was able to look out his back window without seeing the death that he caused. He wanted Robert E. Lee never to look, be able to walk in his backyard without being come face to face with all of the issues that he had caused. And all of us, we look at that and we're like, yes! This is like... Montgomery Meigs dropped the mic moment. Like, yeah, finally. Someone gave that to Robert E. Lee. So you punish him, and you punish him, and you punish him, and you let him know it over and over again. That's how revenge works for us. Revenge is something where it starts off with just us, minding our own business, seemingly innocent, and and doing nothing that should cause anything, when suddenly someone comes in, and they do something against us. They disturb our reality. They disturb, they offend us. They say something. They do something that wounds us or wounds someone else around us. And we know what to do in this situation. We wait. We wait for the moment. The moment when we have an upper hand. The moment when we can finally watch them in a vulnerable place. And when that moment happens, boom, we have our revenge. We say the word. We we triumph over their defeat. We, We do something that gets back at them so that they feel the pain that they caused us. That they feel in some way, shape, or form. They own the pain that they caused the person that we care about. We don't just wound them once. We're just like, we, we really want to get them out of the situation. And once they're totally defeated, we can all of a sudden take a cleansing breath, and the universe is right again. True? That's what we do. The reality is, is that this is something that, that each one of us um, does over and over and over again, but especially when we feel in vulnerable places where we feel uh, trespassed upon. Someone wrote in... Um, to, a, to me on this subject and said this, my adopted dad was an evil man. 
I had a love-hate relationship with him. Most of the time, I hated him. One of the things that he liked was an ice-cold glass of water with dinner every night. So us kids would have to make sure that the water pitcher was filled the night before so that he could have his nice cold water with supper the next day. Dinner time was especially difficult in my household. He usually picked a fight with one or more of us kids, and it would lead to a very emotional, crying, hateful dinner experience that has still affected me to this day. So depending on how mean he was at dinner time would depend on whether or not I would spit in his water pitcher the night before. No one else in my family knew about this, not even my brother who attends Manuka Bible Church. I would get complete satisfaction, however, watching him drink his water with my spit in it. My adopted dad has since passed away, and I know that Jesus has forgiven that teenager that knew nothing else but to pay back the injustice she saw at her family's dinner table. If you're on the brink of sweet revenge, if you're in a place where you're currently wounded and trying to figure out what action needs to be taken. Or if you're a breathing human being, this is going to happen to you again, where you're coming to a place with your spouse, with your coworkers, with your boss, with your family, with your neighbors, where you're going to come face-to-face with being on the brink of sweet revenge, either in your attitude, your words, or your actions. And in that mode, in that moment, the rea- what people impacted by the gospel have is a better plan with better justice, and with a better story. And that leads to two actions. The first of the two actions is trusting payback to God's hands, not our own. Trusting payback to God's hands, letting him be the one that's taking it, not our own. And now this is especially difficult when we feel like not only we have been wounded, but someone else has been wounded. Um, someone else in our church wrote this. My dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's when I was about 11 years old. And he was a carpenter up until he could not do that job anymore. He was 59, and, I was, and, and he was the sole breadwinner in our family, so he had to work. He became a janitor at a diesel truck facility. It was many years ago, in my late uh, teens, early 20s, that I found out that my dad's co-workers were throwing gum in his hair and making huge oil spills purposely for him to clean up. I just really couldn't understand how people could be so evil and so mean. I felt so much anger in my heart, and I wanted to storm down there and knock each one of them out, or better yet, pound their faces in. And she goes on to say that she carried the bitterness of that throughout her adult years. Long after her dad stopped working, long after that situation was long since gone, the bitterness, every time that surfaced in her heart, she wanted vengeance. This notion will make no sense if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, honestly, the best mode for you is to just try to figure out the best way to take vengeance. To just, you know, get, get even without people finding out, and that's the best way you can go. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a better story. Because your story is to actually trust that payback to God's hands, not our own. When we find situations like this, it makes it difficult to do that because we want vengeance. We want this situation to be answered for. And the cool thing, and the the amazing thing is that scripture doesn't just blow it off. It actually has an answer. It dignifies vengeance. See, scripture lays out the need for vengeance, the promise of vengeance, and the end of vengeance. Scripture communicates that, and actually the gospel meets scripture with that. The gospel exposes toxic actions as wrong and requiring justice. There is a need for vengeance, because no matter how wounded you were, you have no idea how bad it was. 
Because not only did that action happen, you also had the wrong on top of the wrong, which was the motives behind it. Greater than that, there was a systematic, sinful, rebellious, broken thing that caused people to hurt each other, leading to that person hurting you or the person that you love. It's far worse than you possibly can imagine. And the gospel exposes toxic actions, not as something that's just worthy of just blowing off, but actually as wrong and requiring justice. The promise of vengeance is in Scripture too. And the gospel assures us that God not only, or not only deals with it, he actually, there's no way that he could possibly ignore justice. Go throughout the Old Testament, and when people... <laughs> reading their Bible, sometimes like, I just hate the Old Testament. Because God just seems like such a vengeful God. He is. He is such a vengeful God. And throughout the Old Testament, the things that he's poignantly offended by is one, idolatry, and two, marginalizing those who are weak and ostracized by society, whether they're foreigners or anyone else. And when God comes in, he's like, this is not right. And his vengeance comes out. Scripture promises that vengeance will be served. It will be served. And ultimately, there's an end of vengeance. The gospel clarifies that God is the only one capable of doing this. He's the only one capable of effectively managing vengeance. In the vengeance department, there's only one party who does it effectively, and that is God. And the reason is because we are both unqualified and incapable of executing effective justice. Effective vengeance. You can, you can be vengeful. You can totally do it. You can actually accomplish some of your goals. You could reduce that person to being just as weak and and broken up as you were when they hurt you. That's totally doable, but it won't be effective. Neither in them or in you. The reason is, first off, the unqualified part. We we have an overinflated view of personal good. We have an overinflated view of personal good. We think that that we're actually um, coming from a place of being totally on on the up and up, and this person is totally on the wrong. But, we, but we're not. We actually have to embrace the fact that we have issues too. We have a, a tendency to look harsher at other people's wrongs than we do our own. So when we see ourselves get wounded, we want to bring justice. But we don't see how much we are actually wounding others ourselves. Let me give you an example of how this hypocrisy works inside of our lives. Let's just say that there's a person who looks at illegal immigration, millions of people coming into the country, and says, Millions of people are doing this. This is illegal. Justice. We need justice. We need justice against them. And that same person could drive up to the Louis Joliet Mall, get pulled over by a cop, and get frustrated by the fact that he's being cited a ticket for going 10 miles over the legal driving limit. Are you serious? Officer, millions of people do this. Why why are you making such a big deal about it? See, we want justice for them. We don't want justice for all. We certainly don't want justice for us. We don't want the consequences of our own actions, but we're ready, we're ready to serve justice when someone else is doing something that we would never do. The reality is, is that this is why uh, a judge uh, in a court case could never be the type of person that if you broke into someone's house if you, and you stole some stuff, if that happened to be a judge's house, that judge can't preside over that case. Because he's, he can't do that. That's, that, that, that. that's unqualified. Actually, a better example, the judge in that situation, if, if you have a judge that is over uh, cases, that can't be someone with a criminal past. If you have a judge who who's had, has misdemeanors and felonies, and he's presiding over people with misdemeanors and felonies, there's no confidence in that, that person's ability. He's unqualified. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. 
And so this idea that, we are, that we've got the qualifications to issue justice is wrong. Not only are we unqualified, but we're also incapable. This is, this is more the example of the judge being in the type of situation where um, if you wronged a judge, he can't sit and preside over that case. If you're in the jury box and you even know the, the defendant or the plaintiff, you can't even be, sit in the jury over that case because you're either going to overserve justice or underserve it. We understand, and the reason that, that our court systems are set up that way is because on some profound, primary, primal level, we know that those people would be incapable of, of being objective enough to be able to give justice. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful, it's crooked. It, it's something beyond what we can possibly understand. We don't know our own heart. And so when we think that we're the person that is capable of actually doing something in, in an objective manner, we're, we're fooling ourselves. No. We, we need to do instead is to be the type of person that's trusting payback to God's hands, not mine. Payback is poison. We cannot handle it without poisoning ourselves. We must trust it in God's hands, not our own. You know, when you read like the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying, you know how you guys are, you're not, we're not supposed to murder each other? And everyone's like, yeah. Well, I say one step further. Not only should you not murder someone, killing them, but you shouldn't hate people because that's like murdering them in your heart. What's the big deal? I'm not hurting anybody. Jesus' point is, no, you're hurting yourself. See, my, 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 the way that I'm calling you to live is not only to not hurt somebody else, not to do that, don't bring harm to someone else, but also don't carry the poison inside yourself because you're harming you when you do that. Revenge, even if it's just psychological, even if it's only in your head and that's where it stops, not only is something that could harm the other person, but it will in invariably harm yourself. We need to trust instead payback. Payback to God's hands, not our own. A movie that's up for nomination for uh, the Oscars this year is The Revenant. And I totally hope uh, Leonardo DiCaprio gets an Oscar for this. It was a profoundly amazing performance. It is a difficult movie to watch. And, it, and it's a movie where you've got uh, his character, uh, Hugh Glass, who's pitted up against Tom Hardy's character and uh, Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald, after, uh, after Leonardo DiCaprio's character is attacked by a bear, Fitzgerald is, is assigned with the task to wait for him to die and then bury him. He's going to die. It's going to happen. He's, he's on death's doorstep. But they're being pursued by Native Americans. And so like, he, he's got he's to... They need somebody to stay with him and bury him, give him a proper burial, and then skedaddle out of there. Well, Fitzgerald gets totally impatient with the whole process and instead decides to bury him alive. And the rest of the movie, and I'm not going to spoil the whole movie for you, just part of it. The rest of the movie is Leo DiCaprio crawling out of that grave and making his life goal to get back at Fitzgerald, to hunt him down, to acquire his vengeance the book that the movie was based on is called uh, The Revenant, and the byline is A Novel of Revenge. And, it's a, and, and as you go through the story, you have Leo DiCaprio's character in pursuit. You know, make, you know he's, he's literally dead man walking with wounds that are just gaping, and he's, just, he's hunting Fitzgerald down, hunting him down. He's a walking corpse. He, he comes across a, a Pawnee Native American, and he, he tells him his whole story. And the Pawnee is able to empathize with it. He says, you know what? Um, the Sioux came through our camp and murdered my entire family. And my heart still bleeds over it. But revenge is in the hand of the creator. 
But it didn't stop Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass continues to hunt for Fitzgerald. And it gets to the point where you get that satisfaction of him seeing him at the end of the movie. And I won't give the end of the movie away, but I will tell you the last line in the movie. The last line comes from Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Hugh Glass, when he says, Revenge is in God's hands, not mine. See, what's that, what that's echoing is the reality we see in Scripture. When someone has wronged us, we have a higher standard, a, a, more, a better story, which says, from, according to Paul in Romans 12, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the Scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. See, God, God is good at his word that he will seek vengeance, but his vengeance is accurate. His vengeance is, is whole. His vengeance is not biased the way that our vengeance is. It's not marred by, by in, uh, of having a subjective perspective. See, when, when we have God enter into the scenario, all of a sudden, we're afforded the ability for God not only to judge them, but to judge us. Have you ever been in a situation where you reacted to something, and a day later, or a week later, or 15 minutes later, you realize, I think I may have gone overboard on that one. I think I may have said some things or did some things that I regret. I wished I, wished I would have given it time. I wish I would have afforded that with some space. When we allow, when we let God be the one that's taking the vengeance, when we're putting that, when we're letting the payback be his, we're giving time for God to deal with us and refine our hearts so that we can actually understand, is there something that I need to say to this person? Do I, is something that I need to apologize? Yeah, they wronged me, but is there something I need to apologize for? And then also, it not only is just something where we're kind of passively giving something to God, it give us the, gives us the active place of putting ourselves underneath them. Now, this is the part that if you're not a Christian, you're gonna, you could just ignore this till the end of the message because this is going to be way too hard without Christ. What Scripture calls us to do is to actually proactively do the person who has wronged us, who we want to seek revenge against, to actually proactively do them good. And we, we can actually do that. We can reflect what David did. First off, by sparing them from our wrath. Our wrath. And, and you may be thinking, I don't have any wrath. Yes, you do. You, talk to people around you. You have wrath. You're like, oh, but, but I only do it when it's right. No, no, you don't. You have wrath that shows up in, in loud wrath or quiet wrath. You have wrath that, that, that's to the person's face. Or you have wrath that's like, I'm going to take this person down on Facebook. Blah, 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 blah. You have wrath that's, that's actually, I'm going to punch them in the face. Or you have wrath that says, I'm going to, every day that they're alive, I'm going to have one small word that's going to just burrow in and barb them to know that they hurt me and wounded me back then, and it'll never, ever be forgotten. Spare them. Spare them. Spare them your wrath. Why? Because what they did wasn't a big deal. No, what they did was a big, it's worse than you think what they did. Spare them because of what Christ has done in you. The gospel that has met you in your need. The gospel which has met you in your weakness. The gospel which met each one of us in our sin can cause us to respond to them by sparing them our wrath. Secondly, to actually pray for God to heal them. Not pray for God to cause a massive bus just to meet their car, you know, on the 55. Not praying that, 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 what, that the boss just one day sees how crooked they are and then they're exposed as a liar for the whole company. Those prayers are awesome to pray. They, they feel really good. But that's not, what, what, what the, that's not the picture of the gospel in us. A picture of the gospel in us actually calls us to pray for God to heal them. Pray for God to heal them. 
then you, again, if you're, if you're old, if you're 20 plus years old in here, no, I mean, even if you're in junior high or younger, you've been hurt and wounded by someone. What if instead of responding the way we normally respond, we actually pray for God to heal them and said, God, if it was up to me, and I was alone in a room with this person, you know what I would do. Because you're inside of me. And I'm not a free agent. I'm actually an ambassador of your glory and your gospel. Because of that, I'm asking you to heal this person. I never ever see myself being a friend of this person necessarily. But you do transformative work. And what if you restored this person and they bowed before you and you healed their heart? And what if one day we actually were able to engage as brother to brother or brother to sister or sister to sister because in Christ you had done what no one else could do. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for God to heal them. Thirdly, not only sparing them your wrath, not only praying for them, but also three, and this is the most difficult, we kind of notch these up progressively, blessing them with a selfless act. Blessing them with a selfless act. What if instead of simply just saying, okay, I'm going to disconnect myself from actually taking out my vengeance against them. I'm going to trust God with the payback. I'm going to spare them my wrath. It's very difficult, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to privately pray for this person to get healed. And you could stop right there. And, and I, if you want to stop right there, I totally understand it. But what if you did this? What if you took one step further and said, I'm not only going to just do these things, but I'm actually going to make direct contact with this person. This isn't appropriate in every situation, but in some situations, you need to sense whether or not God is leading you to do something that reflects, again, his work in you. What if you did something kind to them? Selfless. And you're going to get zero glory out of it. You're going to get zero, be- zero benefit. You're probably going to get zero gratitude or zero thanks from that person. They're not going to acknowledge what you're doing as, as good, most likely. But what if you did it anyway? What if you did it merely because of the fact that God has restored you in such a way? And you're just doing that because that's who you are. You're part of his kingdom. His kingdom in this world's eyes is upside down. But you're, and you're just going to flesh it out and live that out. In Leviticus, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Another great revenge movie is The Princess Bride. How many have seen The Princess Bride? Okay, this service has a lot of homework to do this week. Okay, you got to go see The Princess Bride. Read your Bible and then and then watch The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is, is an amazing story, and Mandy Patinkin plays a character, this guy right here in the left-hand corner with the sword, um, and his character, his name is Inigo Montoya. And what is the famous line from the movie? Hello? My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. It's a great movie. It's the whole movie. He's looking for the six-finger man who killed his father. And he's got the speech lined up. And he knows exactly what he's going to do before he kills him. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And he's got it. The whole movie, he's searching for this man. I came across uh, Mandy Patinkin today. This is 34-year-old Mandy Patinkin when he played that role. 58-year-old or 55, upper 50s Mandy Patinkin um, was watching his movie again. And he picked up on a line 
that he never really understood. He said the line when he was 34 years old, but he never heard it the way he did as he did in his 50s. Check out what he has to say about it. Well, there are two lines from The Princess Bride that I love. The one that everyone is very familiar with is, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That's the popular one. But I heard another line from the movie about five, six years ago. I was in the gym working out, running through my lines, my songs for a concert. The the TV was on, the movie was on the TV, but the sound was off because I was running my stuff. I went up to my hotel room to have my dinner before I went to the theater. My wife was there and she had the movie on. It was at the end of the movie, right when Buttercup falls out the window into Andre's arms and Robin falls into Andre's arms. The man in black, Carrie, is sitting there asking me to be the Dread Pirate Roberts. And and, and that 30-year-old Mandy and the 55, 58-year-old Mandy's watching this, watching the 30-some-year-old Mandy say a line that I said, it's in the movie, but I didn't really hear it as that young man. And for me, it's the most potent line in the whole film. And that line is, I have been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I do not know what to do with the rest of my life. And I love that line, and I love it for all of us, because the purpose of revenge, in my personal opinion, is completely worthless and pointless. And, and the purpose of existence is to embrace our fellow human being, not be revengeful, and um, turn our darkness into light. And so that's the line I love from the movie. Wish you could have seen the video on that, but the thing I love about what uh, Mandy Patikin says in that is that he nails it. Revenge is pointless. There's a better story that we could play, bringing darkness into light, but the thing that he missed was the best vengeance story of all time. The best vengeance story of all time is the story that many of us in this room share, which is the fact that In our brokenness and our depravity, in our separation from God, we deserved death. We deserved judgment. We deserved wrath. We were the villains. And he was the hero. And the greatest vengeance story of all is not him seeking vengeance against us, but him taking the vengeance that we deserved upon himself on the cross. Is that your story? I I tried to track down who said this quote, and I couldn't find it. Um, but the quote is, and I don't know if it's going to come up here or not. Computer's acting kind of funky. Nope, it's not. But the quote is, it goes something like this. It says that the gospel story is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. The gospel is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. That's our story. If you're in brokenness, if you're in darkness... You can't merely just try to be a good person and try to engage this world because that's going to work until you've been offended enough that all of a sudden you're like, that's too far. I can't possibly respond to, to this. I can't possibly let that go. But if if Christ is the one who's the center of your life, if he has forgiven you, if he's redeemed you, then all of a sudden the light has come into the darkness. You are restored. And in addition to that, you then have the ultimate example of what it looks like to express grace. And there's nothing that anyone could possibly do to you that would match what he forgave, what he endured 
for me, for me. If that's not your story, enter into that story today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that our account is not one that merely adheres to a a set of rituals or beliefs or dogmas. It's more than that. Lord, the truth of Scripture screams out the fact that justice needs to be met, that, that there's wrongs that have been done, but not just wrongs by other people, wrongs by each and every one of us. And in our brokenness, sometimes we can totally see everyone else's issues but, but our own. But God, you see them. Not only did you see them, but you died for them, giving us an opportunity to be forgiven, made new through what you did on the cross and your death and your resurrection. You absorbed my punishment You took my pain, and you gave me your holiness. If you've never done that, right now, just as we're praying, simply respond to him by saying, I need you. I'm asking to receive the forgiveness that only you can give me. I'm asking to start new from what you did on the cross. And I'm asking to walk in the light that you have established. And when I struggle and when I fall, that I, let me cling back to who you are, Christ. Lord, for the rest of us, let us walk with the example of the fact that the hero died for the villain and let that impact the way that we engage those who've wronged us in our world. And let us be the type of people that are leaving the payback to you and actively pursuing the good of all people, even those who are enemies. And we'll give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.